DMC fins are the best training fins in the business. Just have a look around in everybody's kit bag on pool deck, and there's a pair of DMC fins in there. Swimmers, surfers, they're all using DMC fins as their choice of aquatic propulsion. Even superstar Cody Simpson is using DMC fins to help with his training towards Paris 2024. Head over to dmcfins.com.au right now for all the latest deals and discounts on fins as well as hand paddles and other training aids and use the promotion code OFFTHEBLOCKS for a 10% discount at checkout. Australia in four, the United States in five. to the Shannon Rollison podcast for another week. Um, we have a very special guest with us uh, this week, which we're going to get to. And we've been teasing him, Shannon, for, for quite a few weeks. Shannon keeps getting into me, Dave, because we've been saying that you're coming on the podcast and then we'd, there's another week and we're not quite there yet. And he's saying, are we going to get this done? Because you keep telling people we've got Dave Marsh coming on the podcast. But oh. we finally here, we've, we've managed to arrange it and Dave's a very busy man. So we've, <laughs> we're fortunate that he's uh, given up his time to join us today. Uh, Mr. Shannon Rollison, obviously the host of the podcast with us again and as per usual when this sort of stuff happens where we've got uh, icons of uh, swimming coaching around the world joining each other with Shannon and Dave my my mug drops right out of this and I just let you guys go into it because no one wants to hear from me so Shannon uh, I'll let you uh, take it away Mr David Marsh thanks for joining us and Shannon take it away thanks yeah. Robbie thanks Dave for your time good to see you yeah you bet. good seeing you absolutely um and am I right in saying you've just come back from the UC, uh, the w, what NCAAs? It? NCAAs. Yeah. <laughs> NCAA. I love that you don't even know it. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to tell people in the United States, I said, listen, listen, nobody knows about the swimming because it's, first of all, it's in 25 yards. And then, and then it's shown on ESPN three, not one, not two, but three. And it's held during the basketball. Uh, Sweet 16, finally, and, I, and I'm just like, I'm, I've had it with it being not known because it's an amazing competition. And, and when you put a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds at one time, it's amazing. Yeah. So about two weeks out of being at NCAAs and uh, I was out in Atlanta with Dave Durden and the Cal Bears. And, and uh, so I got a little new taste of, uh, of NCAAs. And so kind of been around the world. It's really interesting to, 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 to uh, experience that. Yeah, we always refer to it as NCAAs. Um, and actually, so, yeah, I, I actually had, look, and I'll confess, I've never looked at it until this year. Exactly. Okay. 
And um, I've got to assume that I... Podcasters have to keep up with the current going on. Going yes, I understand. <laughs> no, I'm not even that good. Um, <laughs> I've got a swimmer <laughs> over there who uh, I coached um, on and off for the last sort of three years or so. And the 18 months leading up into um, the Olympic trials, uh, her name's Abby Webb. Yes, great. Dave, Congratulations. She was, she was in Auburn. Um, yep. And then she came back when COVID sort of hit. And, uh, and she's in uh, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I believe there's two North Carolinas and uh, there's a red one, I was told, yep. and a blue one. And I think it's a blue <laughs> one. She's at UNC then. So that's the Tar Heels. They made it to the finals of the basketball tournament. Actually, I was just talking to Mark Gangloff, their head coach today. He's one of my former uh, Olympic swimmers. He's a two-time Olympic gold medalist on relays. So, yeah, he's, he's, he's a very good coach. And, and that program is building nicely, as is Auburn, by the way. And, and of yeah. course, NC State's already established. So they're, uh, it, I, I, do, it's, I try to tell people exactly what you're experiencing, which is like people aren't paying attention to the NCAAs, folks. The reality is we got to get it on primetime TV and then we need to move the short course meters so people understand the times because the times are so fast. I mean, these guys are going so fast right now, short course. It's, it's really kind of crazy how fast it takes to get into the top 16 or top eight. It's, it's really fast. Yeah, yeah. I um, And look, I'll be honest, I, I've, I've personally gone the other direction, you know, with um, with in my swimming career, I, I always tended to go to Europe, and um, and there was a there's a group of coaches that would go to America, and they were very much in that America uh, travel and what was going on in America. Um, but the longer I've coached, um, the more uh, I've asked myself about what makes U.S. swimming so so strong. Uh, and so that's probably one of the questions I want to get to uh, with yourself uh, to see your views, and then I'll I'll, I'll chime in with what I think. Um, the uh, and it, I think it is around the NCAA's. Um, but uh, if I had of if you had have asked me this before I went to Denmark, you know my answer would have been different. But uh, so I suppose you know. I remember the first time you were, you won't remember the first time you met me, but I remember the first time I met you uh, was you were coaching at Auburn and you were what, Auburn 1990 to 2007. Now, the first yes. time I met yeah. you, yeah, the first time was 2002 Manchester Commonwealth Games. I think. Oh, yeah. Great, great, great games. Wow. That was awesome. That was good, wasn't it? I think you were coaching yeah. Brett Hawke then or? Yeah, Kirstie Coventry. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Oh yeah, with the uh, Zimbabwe team. Yeah, yep. yeah. Now that I've I've said to Robbie uh, many occasions, that was well, it was definitely the best Commonwealth Games I've been to. So uh, it was great. And they talk about good fishing ships. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Kirsty won. I think she won the tour, and I am out of lane eight or one, one of the outside lanes. So it was a, it was a it was a great memory being there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The um and the South Africans. Uh, Princess Charlene from Monaco, she was swimming in that team. In the, yep. Uh, yep. She was a backstroker back in those days. So, um, yep. great, great event. 
Yeah, and, and you know, I remember the first time I met you. You were known as a as a sprint coach. Um, well, Auburn were doing great things in sprinting and stuff like that. Um, and uh, then you moved on to North Carolina. Is that correct? Yeah, I went to, after seventeen years of college. I went on to club for about ten years yeah. in North Carolina. Yeah, and now you're in San Diego. San Diego, doing a quasi. I mean, over I oversee and help a club sort of do well, but then I have a team lead that's sort of a small professional group that trains here too. And, and then I do, you know, what I did this last uh, few months, I do some consulting and try to try to help people be better coaches and better swimmers and better teams. Okay. So we have that sort of in Australia, I think they call them the CLT group, coach leadership. Don't know what the T stands for. <laughs> is that, is that uh, organized by Swimming Australia? Yeah, it is. Yeah, this is just, we, we do things on our own over here. We really don't have a, there's not a format to do it. We just, you know, we, the coaches that are like me, I'm 63, getting to the point where my strength is probably mentoring and sort of giving back more so. Yeah. It's not that coaching isn't my, is a strength, but it's still, I mean, I think it can cover more ground by, you know, by mentoring and just trying to help people be yeah. better at, uh, in a bigger picture. Oh, that's good to, good to hear. Um, that's probably might be an area that I end up going into. Uh, yeah, that's great. That's great. And you would be great at it. And uh, there's not enough of it. And it's great when you get a new set of eyes on a coach's deck, because there's things that they just haven't seen. You know, you get into ruts and you get into routines, what you do, and you, you don't have sort of take time to reflect and evaluate what you're doing and how you're getting there. Sometimes a new, new personal deck that you can respect uh, can give you a whole nother way to look at it. So it's a, yeah, so it's a, it's a, you know, at this stage and age, I think it's it hopefully something I can do more and more of. Yeah, no, that sounds good. I was um, I in doing a bit of background. Um, I Wikipedia'd you, and uh, I saw an interview <laughs> with the Tenerife top training, and uh, um, I, I was the last camp I did in when I was in Edinburgh. We we were up there in the January period, and you know. France and Germany and all the big teams were in. It's a really good place. But um, in the interview, you said you were left-handed. So, and I was Very saying, much. I was saying to Robbie, uh, one of the common stats on, on the Australian teams when I was on the on the teams between '02 and 2012. I mean, I'm left-handed, so we've got that in common. But there was yep. more left-handed coaches on the team every year than right-handed. Yep. I don't know if that's that holds for uh, the across the border in the USA, but for sure in 2000, when we happened to do a, a random check, there was more left-handed than right-handed. Yep. It's amazing, isn't yep. it? You know? Yeah. It's uh, I mean, I know I'm, I'm left-handed, I'm ADHD, I've got it all. So I've got all the things <laughs> that just, you know, scream that you have to be a coach because you got to do something that's active. You got to see a lot of things at one time, you know, so I, I, I definitely have all the stuff that, Probably, uh, uh, you know, was I was I'm sure I was meant to be a coach a long long before I ever knew I was going to be a coach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the things you were talking about is having these circuits uh, and developing skills in that. And it reminded me of what I was doing at the AOS with Damien Farrow in the skill acquisition area. And it was like an adventure playground, and you yeah. had just corners of the pools where they were doing starts or underwater or turns or technique swimming yeah really yeah. uh i always used to like those sessions i think it was the busyness like you say 
Yeah, I think like you, you talked about busyness before and that you thrive in the busyness. And that's actually my response after being at NCAAs. And I forgot how much I like chaos. I like, I like a lot of things going on at once to where I have to prioritize what I'm going to say at any given time or not say in many, many cases. A lot of times it's what you don't say that's more important. And in uh, decisions you make or don't act on, all these things are clicking off at NCAAs and they're firing, firing away very quickly. And so I, 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 that's probably the biggest thing that, uh, uh, that NCAA sort of stunned me with is I, I guess I missed the chaos. I, I had that chaos in the 2016 Olympics when I was the head coach because my role was to look, step back and look at the whole program and the whole picture and how can we make things better. It wasn't about, you know, I, I mean, I had several swimmers on the team, but it was about, you know, my priority was the whole program. So in many cases, I would go into the women's team meetings and, and the meetings would get going and it'd be the athlete speaking. And I was like, all I had to do was give logistics. I, I didn't have to give one word, anything extra of extra, of, uh, uh, you know, motivation or some little quote I had in my little book I was going to give. I said, nope, they don't need any of that. Let's get out of here. We're ready to go. You know, so it's uh, yeah. So I, I like the, the chaos and the end of moment uh, experience of, of, of intense coaching. Yeah, very much so. I'm um, a big fan of that. Uh, I think it, I find it stimulating. Uh, you you tend to use your gut and you read the room, uh, you read yeah. the situation, um, and, uh, you know, it's you probably anyone that's listened to me talk about uh, 2004 when the bus didn't turn up. Um, <laughs> Always happens. Yeah, always happens. <laughs> the women's hundred freestyle, and for years yeah. I used to think, should I be more professional and have a, a set warm up for this this swimmer of mine, Jody Henry? And uh, we even had the conversation, and she was like, "Oh no, whatever." And that bus not turning up, I mean, it was the perfect thing for her and I, um, yeah. because it just suited that what we'd been doing. Um, well, didn't didn't, didn't uh, Purnell get lost on a bus too, going to the pool one of the sessions? Yeah, twenty sixteen. No, uh, yeah, it was Janetta Otteson. Ah, uh, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was on that bus, and Fran <laughs> Fran Hassel from England, she was there, and and you've got a good memory. I mean, because we had to delay that race, wasn't it? Yeah, I know. I remember. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. we were on this bus and trying to convince, uh, you know. Fina and or the Olympic Committee or the head coaches with um, you know Nick Juba from Denmark and um, Bill Finesse from the UK, yeah. and we had to convince them that we were no we were on a bus, we were, had <laughs> all had to get off this bus and we got put on this other one and then this guy takes us to the athletic stadium. Yep, yep, <laughs> I remember that. That was amazing. I've had that happen in Doha, which is a little more scary, you know, where they, they, they just take you where they, where they're going. And it's like, we're like, you know, yelling at the bus driver, like, what are you doing? You know, but it's, yeah. So it's the, it, 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 it as the meets get bigger and the logistics get more complicated, something's going to go wrong. It always is. And so if you have athletes that are relying on everything being perfect procedure, you're going to be in big trouble. Yes. So you better have uh, athletes that you better be developing athletes that can handle you know, unique situations, sometimes no warm up. And you, in fact, you ought to be doing some racing sets off of no warm up, you know, just so they're ready for really anything. You know, the, I think Bob Bowman was one of the classics when he, you know, one day smashed uh, 
Phelps's goggles when they when they were up on the deck and it said, you know, do your do your do your workout without goggles today because your goggles may fall off. And sure enough, you know, his goggles fell off one time in one of his key races in the Olympics. So yeah. uh yeah, it's our it's our responsibility as coaches to, to prepare athletes for the all 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 situations. No, absolutely couldn't agree more. And um I sort of call I call that throwing a curveball. And I think it's one of the things that it's the challenges of uh, our high performance centers and programs. Um, it's, it's a challenge for the su- support staff that Australia has that they think everything has to be perfect and actually it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, you, you don't want it to be perfect. So, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And I think the, think if you know it's to some degree that that's you know when we were forming the junior teams in the u.s you know that's one of the things i was really emphasizing let's take them to secondary meets where there is chaos so that they get used to it and put them in dorms instead of hotels yeah. you know let things be a little more uncomfortable so they experience you know less than ideal circumstances all the time yeah. uh, i don't know what they're doing now but they you know back in the early days they were doing that yeah well i think that was a mistake um back in those probably the same sort of era that you're talking about They'd go to Hawaii and they'd be in a four or five star hotel, yeah. and the junior swimmers. And then um, we'd go to Europe uh, with the AIS, and and uh, some of those junior swimmers, they were like, "Oh, we can't stay here." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can go back home. Yes, that'd be good. Go back home, it'd be fine. We'll be fine without you. I promise. <laughs> yeah, and being on the Denmark team uh, in. Uh, Rio, <laughs> I was the only one that had been, you know, from a staff point of view, that had been at, a, at an Olympics. And I remember um, a couple of the coaches that were on there were looking around and going, is this it? I said, yes, <laughs> this is what you've been working for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, eat this food, wait for this bus, and it's going to be the wrong bus, by the way. And, uh, and uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's hey, it. It's pretty amazing. I, I try to explain to people how, you know, you spend all this time preparing these athletes for everything to be perfect. Then you go to the Olympic Village and they're sleeping in single beds. I mean, you know, the, I, I remember in, was it uh, uh, London, when I walked into uh, Matt Griever's room and he had, he had a, his bed. Of course, he wasn't, his bed wasn't long enough for to sleep on. So he had a table, he pulled a table over and his feet are over on the table. So he's sleeping with his feet on the table <laughs> through, the, through the grids on the, on the bed. So his feet are sticking through the grids on a table and he's trying to sleep. That's <laughs> like, golly, trying to win a gold medal. Like, it, yeah. So as much as things that we, we do everything real posh, we can look at games and things are very basic. The food's basic, the transportation's chaos yeah. and the uh, warm-ups chaos, you know, and, and uh, yeah, it's just, it's just the way it is. Yeah. Now, and, um, and that, that's when you really see the cream rise to the top, isn't it? Those people who, who can handle whatever's thrown at them, um, and, and I think, you know, it, it, I've always said it's, it's the real difference between a world championships, uh, and an Olympic games, um, world championships can be a lot, uh, more scripted than yeah. an Olympics. And, um, you can have people who can flourish at a world championships and, and not handle that chaos. So it's important. Yeah. 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 I'd agree. And Korea, Korea gave us more of an Olympic village feel. So that was kind of good for preparation for the Olympics. But I think uh, most of the time, you're right, world championships and even Pan Pacific Games, when we were doing those, those were always some really nice hotels. And 
other than the Australian weather we ran into that one year was rain, raining every day. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, uh, most of the time it's in perfect conditions. Yeah. I also and I also always wonder why didn't we just move to Chandler in that meet? We could have gone one hour up the road and gone, gone to Chandler and been in a fantastic facility. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess I needed to show off the new facility. Yeah, yeah. I, I've um, I actually asked that question only last year, and because uh, I did a camp back at Chandler, and I, I coached there. Uh, you you were probably I remember the American team coming in in two thousand and uh and uh, you guys. I don't know if it was your whole that. team or it was just the women's. Yeah, but, it was the whole team, yeah. Yeah, and, um, you know, I was on, on pool deck. Um, that was my my club from 93 to 04. But um, I touched on it earlier about U.S. swimming and, and just what a powerhouse it's been for so long. You've been, I think you were a swimmer in the late 70s, early 80s, and then yep. uh, so what, what, are, what are your thoughts on why the US has been continuously such a, a, a powerhouse uh, nation. And I don't want to give too many of my thoughts away, but, you know, they can stand up when it counts. Well, I think the, the, the reason that the, the two, two big reasons, number one is the college system. So the college system, if you think about, you know, the, the number of colleges and there's what, 250 division one colleges, another 200 division two colleges, uh, all giving, most giving a lot of scholarships. So each team, if they're giving the full allotment of scholarships, they're spending, you know, a million plus a year just on the scholarships, not on the travel budget, not on the coach's salary. You know, so if you all, all together, you know, a powerful a power five, we call uh, swimming program. It's probably a three or four million dollar budget at the at the universities uh, within the university budget. Now you multiply that times you know seventy or eighty of them. You're talking about billion billion plus dollars on swimming, and so there's no doubt that 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 whoever established the NCA and, and had made the requirement that they have to have a certain number of sports uh, helped the U.S. Olympic effort radically, and uh, so that I think that's a, that is our number one biggest advantage. I mean our most of our best coaches in the country are, well, many of our best coaches in the country are coaching at colleges. They get very nice salaries. Uh, they are able to give scholarships and food and accommodation and fifth year uh, post-grad opportunities at these colleges. So they, you know, they can do all this for, uh, uh, you know, and pay for it. They're not, you know, they're not having to pay the athletes to come in. They're paying for it. So that's a, that's a, giant advantage over anywhere in the world. Now, there are internationals that come over the U.S. and take advantage of that as well. It's not for everybody because uh, the long course equation, the short course doesn't always pay off. I mean, uh, in the NSA, the, the focus is short course swimming, short course yards even, which is one cycle less than short course meters for the most part. Mm. And, and uh, uh, some of the athletes, they get too charged up about short course you never see them back in long course to the degree they were in short course. So it's a little bit, you know, it can be a little scary. I'm sure in Denmark, you had some athletes that, that came over and, and, uh, and swam in the U S and, and for some, they come back. And as long as their, their, their program, they chose to attend to respects long course and gets the guys training again right away in April and May and, and gets ready and it gets the focus back on long course quickly. Then I think you're okay. Uh, but sometimes that can be a little dangerous, but, but when you talk about the masses and the dream, I mean, the, 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 the typical high school kid in the United States 
I mean, they may have an Olympic dream and a lot of them maybe do, but they have a college dream almost as big as the Olympic dream. So it's almost like this next step dream that helps because, you know, if you just by, if, if you're always reaching beyond, uh, you know, beyond what's uh, accomplished that, that most can accomplish, you know, a dream gets old, you, it wears you out and then you're quitting when you're 15 years old because you're not going to be an Olympian. Right. But in the U S when you're 15, you're actually looking for college and you're, you're dreaming about, about what college you're going to go to, what team you're going to swim on, who's going to be your teammates, your best friends through that college experience. So there's no doubt that college swimming is, is, is our competitive advantage. And I'd say the second one would be uh, club coaching, you know, club coaches in the U S that, that are, that are able to focus on uh, high performance within their clubs. And I say able because a lot of them aren't, a lot of them have to sort of just offer uh, sort of a, uh, a happy program where everybody comes to practice and there's no judgment and you're giving your best effort for that day. If you're not there, it's no big deal because, you know, they're, they're answering to a board of directors or they're answering to a municipality that just wants to see kids involved in swimming, which is a very fine thing. It's a great thing. But there are a, a number of club coaches in America uh, that, that sort of assemble in different ways. There's not really a necessarily an organized way that they, they assemble together, but uh, some ways through USA Swimming, but really as much through ASCA and through some other groups. There's a GAIN network, which is a dry land program that a lot of the best clubs are in right now. And so they do a lot. They do collaboration, I would say, independently most of the time. And I think they do a great job of, of uh, developing those high school kids. And again, one of the best things you can do for that high school kid is launch them to one of the best college programs that also respects long course swimming. Yeah. And so if you do that, I think that's part of the magic formula that can really work. And the other thing is we have 500,000 kids or 400,000 something that swim now. Then we have another 2 million that swim in the summer league programs, organized summer programs where they swim for about nine weeks in the summer in their little community pool, representing their little neighborhood, but they're swimming strokes. They're swimming all four strokes. And they're, you know, in many cases it's organized by different outside groups, but sometimes it's just the, 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 the cities that organize themselves. But that's probably some of our biggest advantage when it comes to swimming. Yeah, that, um, that last one just reminds me of what we talk about um, with Queensland swimming. Yeah, Queensland's the powerhouse uh, of, of all the states. And uh, we're only just talking about how I got into coaching, was in a small club, um, and, every, and, and that's where I started swimming. And, and most people who swam in Queensland started swimming in these little clubs and then on a Saturday night, you have a three-way meet. Yep. And, point. and yeah, and, and you didn't even know swimming above that level even existed, you know, and it was yep. just great fun. And you got to about 12 or 13, and uh, our coach would then push us on to your Laurie Lawrence's of the world or, yeah, your next-level coaches back then in the 80s. Um, and uh, But you, you formed the love of, of the sport oh yeah oh yeah. yeah it was all about the it was all about the snack bar you know it was yeah. all about finish your racing go to snack bar together right yeah. i mean that's i mean it's good it's good times and and i've and i've been to actually i was over in perth once when i watched one of your the big high school events you have where they yeah. have all the high school kids swimming and, and it seems like tons of kids who don't even 
like do swing is a normal event. They're in there swinging the meets and, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, you can, you can find some real talent there. I'm sure for Australia, that's been a, a, a part of where you find talented swimmers. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I um getting back to the, the U S thing. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and it became evident actually uh, when I went to Denmark and coming, you know, coming back, from coaching in a small nation and, and the swimmers from Denmark that went into the college system were predominantly males and the females stayed in Denmark. Um, but what I started looking at was the competitiveness and learning how to be comfortable in an uncomfortable environment. And one of the things that struck me uh, when I was in Denmark was our best swimmers weren't being challenged enough on a regular basis. So, for instance, uh, Regamola Pedersen would would win by 20 to 25 seconds in a 200 breaststroke. Uh, Janetta Otteson would win the 100 fly by four to five seconds. Um, so they were never... Hey, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't care. Whenever uh, Pedersen is swimming breaststroke, I want to watch that stroke. Wow, that was one of my favorite all-time strokes. Yeah. And I saw her break that world record, and I was like, I was there in that moment. So I, 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 that's right here, buddy. I got that in my head, and I still teach that breaststroke to a lot of my breaststrokers that have a good kick. Yeah, no, uh, I, Dave, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and if you, if you never saw it, you missed out on, on something remarkably Beautiful. special. She taught me a lot, um, and uh, I actually – I coached my daughter and I, I sent a video to um, uh, Matt Trodden, uh, who I coached with in the UK, and I said, I'll oh, give me your thoughts. You know, basically I was after some, some feedback. Uh, what am I missing here? And uh, he said, oh, <laughs> it could be a, a mini regga. <laughs> nice. Can't be better than that. I mean, you can't do better than that, right? But it just, it's, it's, it's funny how our swimmers – uh, shape us uh, sometimes no doubt. without us even realizing it um, no from doubt a about technique it. point of view. Uh, but but yeah, getting back to the US thing, and I, and um, so then I started looking at when Australia Australia uh, had gold medalists. It predominantly came from events that were strong as a nation, um, you know, i.e., men's fifteen hundred. Uh, when Jody won the women's hundred free, uh, we were super strong. So they had that national competitiveness, and it's the real challenge for some of those small nations. Uh, so it just shows you how much talent is around. If you can get a Sarah Sostrom and people like that, um, but when I then I started looking at the US, uh, and I'm thinking it's their college system. That because you know I, I can remember back when I was at AIS we used to think why haven't they gone to meters you know <laughs> and yeah. uh, and but I think it's a stroke of genius that uh, they <laughs> haven't because short course meters helps the race get closer and short course yards would would only help that again being twenty two meters. So people who are good around the walls can can make up time. Uh, a good swimmer who's not so good at around the walls, you know, brings them back a little bit. 
So you're just bringing the field closer so everybody's got to get comfortable with a tight race. So that's that was one of my uh, thinking. And then the one I've had for a long time is when the US, uh, I can't remember the exact time in history you would, um, they'd sort of lose a lot of their swimmers after college. But then when they started going to Europe and using the Mare Nostrum tour, it looked as if they started to retain their best athletes for longer. And yeah. then you started integrating two gener. You had this multi-generational all trying to get, make that same Olympic team. Yeah. I think that was that another big plus. Yeah. No, I, I would agree. And I think the, the, uh, you know, Rowdy Gaines was really the first professional swimmer because he missed 1980 and then had to stay around for 84. In 80, he would have been a five-time gold medalist. 84, you know, because of Mark's slow start, he was the champion of the Hunter Freestyle and rode that to the medley relays. So had three, three golds. And I think that there's no doubt that uh, uh, there was a moment of time. And it's part of why I left college swimming to go to club swimming because I went to club swimming to work with professionals also as sort of the, to put a, a professional team on top of a big club like they had in Charlotte, North Carolina. So I did, I moved to Team Elite over there and started it there back in 2007 with the idea that I could focus on the professional swimmer because I, I at Auburn, we had some, you know, great swimmers and we had Kirsty Coventry and Margaret Holzer and some great, great swimmers, but we had some, but, but I didn't feel like I could give them the time because my job, my athletic director, my boss wanted me to develop my college team. That's what he gave me bonuses for. That's what he paid me salaries for. That's what he gave me a travel budget for. He didn't give me one cent for developing an Olympian. Yeah. He didn't give me one cent of travel expense to take them to an international preparation event. So it's all about short course yards. Uh, and, and I, it's interesting you say that about 25 meter, 25 yards swimming, because I guess you're right. It does even a lot of things. Like if, for example, a shorter athlete, that's really good dolphin kicker can compete with all the big boys in a yeah. short course yards pool if they're underwater kickers. And, you know, being a little shorter is an advantage for underwater kicking, you know, in my opinion, sometimes. Agreed. And I think that that's great, except that, those people that rely on underwater kicking, they're generally not showing up too much at the uh, end of the in, in the summertime. And if we're going to judge our sport, and I think we still do, and I'm not sure we always will, but we are right now still judging our sport's highest performance by the Olympic Games, then I think that, uh, that the 25-year-old pool, I would rather have a 25 meters just to get the extra cycle in yeah. and to let the world speak our language because I think it could be a lot more fun I know, I know one of the years in 2004, when uh, my Auburn team won the NCAA championship, you know, Fred Bousquet broke the world record in the 50 freestyle. Uh, George Babel broke the record in the 200 IM. And it was one of, it was just, it was just, it was a message to the world, which was different than what you get with short course yards. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, that from a, um, a sales pitch point of view, yeah. Going to meters would, would bring it in line. Um, and everyone would be able to make sense. But, yeah, that was just my presumption that oh, they're probably keeping it at metres because of, one, you know, the history, I suppose, but 22-metre, oh, that's, that's quick. You know, your speed that you're, you're hitting those walls at is just greater, isn't it, too? So your skills are yeah, going I mean, to what, what, what you do, you learn, you learn how to create power off the wall and you carry power off the wall. So you don't really have to be that good a swimmer to some degree. You can be, 
just a just a great wall person who transitions the wall into the swim yeah. and everybody's getting better at that i mean the times they're going now in short course yards are radically different than when they what they're going back when i left in 2007 at ncaa swimming yeah. radically different but long course were only slightly different i mean slightly short course yards huge long course meters slight yeah yeah um I, I can't remember. You must remember. Who was the first person to break 20? 20 we got, was a guy named Joe Bottom from USC. It was a long time ago. And then the first of 19 was Fred Bousquet. Ah, and now Caleb's the first to, to, to break 18. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember, because Fred, I, th I thought it was Fred, but it was 19 that he broke. That was the barrier. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, I don't know what year it was, but it was, you know, one of those NCAAs we had where, where it was a hell of a first day because, you know, the 50 freeze on the first day. Would, would that have been around 03, 04? Because I remember in 03, he went like 40, I think he went 46 in the relay and everyone thought he was going to win the 100 free that year and Popov won it. 47-0 he went at the, and it was at the Spain, Spain, right? Was it in Spain? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Forty-seven zero anchor on the relay, but Fred's the kind of guy that he, he would swim inspired. If there was a reason for him to be inspired, you know, he had, he had to have something sort of going wrong to bring out his best. I know you've had swimmers like this, I'm sure, where they do their best when they have their back against the wall. And yeah. Fred was like that. And at that meet, he had you know some per, you know personal things and things like that, that that I knew about, but he, I knew he was all you know fired up. Yeah. And he hadn't been known to too many of the French relays, and the French team had a chance to medal. And uh, yeah, he threw in a 47 0, and everybody was like, looked at the split sheet. They're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I kind of knew that this guy was an amazing relay swimmer. And that's where French, France really screwed up in 2012 when they didn't put him on the anchor like they had him. They had him set on the anchor in 2012 at first, yeah. and they switched him uh, right at the last minute. Had they left him on the anchor, France wins, U.S. doesn't win, Michael doesn't get his eight medals. It's, it's a whole, whole other story. But, you know, serendipitously, you know, it played out. Yeah. Now, another great example that the order of a relay team matters. Big time, big yeah. time. There's just some people that will not let anybody get by them, yeah. and they'll die to not let that happen. Yeah, you know, absolutely. it's just it's just the way it is. I mean, I mean, Brett Hawk was like that when I had him back in the Auburn days. He was just such a better relay swimmer than an individual swimmer. Yeah. It's just you know, there, there's people who are just wired for relays, and uh, individual events just don't bring that same uh, you know uh, you know performance out of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, couldn't agree more. Um, we've got uh, our last three podcasts. Um, we've talked about breaststroke. Uh, sprint freestyle and taper. So my my question to you: Have you got two top tips for each one of those titles? Well, those are my, like my three favorite things. <laughs> <laughs> I literally, man, you, if you talked about my coaching period, it'd be sprint free, breaststroke, and how to how to you know figure out how to do a taper. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, my my Try tips. Well, let's go. What's that? Very challenging things, isn't it? So my, uh, yeah, they are. Yeah, breaststrokers are crazy. Sprinters are nuts. And taper is a, sh uh, the crazy. I don't say a shit show, but it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the uh, when it comes to taper, 
Um, taper is for like training can be for groups. Taper is for individuals, right? So you have to look at, you know, individuals, maybe even subgroups. If you have a big team, subgroups, but you can't look at taper as one dimensional thing. Taper involves everything that you're doing, including rest, nutrition, stress management. Uh, your, obviously your dry land program is a big piece of this. And I heard you talking with Tig about that, about the dry, how the dry land program is so critical to the performance aspects. Absolutely it is. And so I would say taper is a, is a, is a, is a, uh, as a reflection of all of this stuff. In fact, I got a good story. You know, we talked about Fred a little bit ago. So when, when Fred, right before Fred went that 18.6, which just blew away the record. I think the record was 19 low and he went all the way down to 18.6 and crushed it. One week before we're heading for NCAAs, back then I didn't have them lift weights several weeks before they went to NCAAs. I would have them sort of phase out of the weight room completely. And I'm really? walking by the, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just walking by the weight room. And I, and I look over to the left and I see Fred in there. So I go walking in there and he's doing uh, power cleans, maxing out one week before the NCAA championships. And so obviously it's too late. I can't say anything. So I don't say anything. I just so okay. Well, I asked the strength conditioning coach, Brian Karkowski. I said, what's, what's the plan? He said, he, need, he feels like he needs to feel stronger. I'm like, okay, we're going with it, man. <laughs> and then, you know, so I, I learned a lot from that, 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 that one moment taught me a lot. Yeah. And, uh, and honestly, ever since then, we've done more. We've lifted later into the taper for almost everybody. Yeah. Uh, but but it's not really how uh, much you lift. It's how it's moving the bar again. It's, it's really moving the it's bar speed. And it's just we just feeling the connection uh, and feeling that, that sort of that muscle memory. I think that's really what it's about. Uh, but during taper, it all it all sort of fit, has to fit in there nicely. Uh, my tapers, I guess, secret that I, you know, I guess a lot of people use now, and I don't know that I, I'm not sure I invented it, but I, I don't remember anybody telling me about it. Is really I cycle through, uh, whether it be you know two weeks out or five weeks out for different people. Generally, I'll go uh, an aerobic session for a, a priority on a day of an aerobic session, so light aerobic or stronger aerobic, depending on the person. A, a speed session, a speed day, they debate day devoted more to speeds, maybe uh, assisted stretch cords, uh, maybe gear they're using that day. And then a day of exact race pace, you know, just you know, simulate race pace. And we cycle through that and the aerobic really becomes the recovery within that cycle. And then the, uh, the speed day really becomes the heavier load more so than the race pace day. So that's sort of how we cycle through days. Sometimes we'll do two aerobic days that make sure they get enough recovery. Like sprinters often, when they do aerobic, aerobic is warming up, really. It's not really training anymore. So that, that would be sort of how I go, I've gone about over my career, uh, managing tapers with individuals and, and then making adjustments individually. So tapers that, um, when it comes to sprint freestyle, uh, sprint freestyle starts with recovery. Uh, you know, if you're a high level athlete, if you're an excellent athlete, like a lot of sprinters are, they have to recover first. It's not about doing work first. It's about they need to be healed up and ready to give 100% or as close to 100% as possible. And Mike Bottom taught me that early in the years when I was had him as an assistant coach at Auburn, where he, he of course, went on to be one of the great sprint coaches of all time. But back then, and he read Ernie Galisco's book, and Ernie Galisco, Ernie Galisco said something about that in his book, Swimming Faster, and and he just he just took it to, to, as the gospel. And so what he did was he he laid down a law where we're going to sprint for 20 minutes, 
and the workout's over. And he would get some incredible intensity out of the guys. And they, these weren't good swimmers. These were guys that were not talented, highly recruited athletes. They were guys that were making their own way. And what happened to be, there were people like Bill Pilzik, who was the, you know, the world champion in Perth, you know, in 98, that was just a ragtag guy that ended up being a world champion because of that kind of philosophy. So recovery first, uh, technique second, uh, uh, value speed third. So those are the, those are the sort of the principles we build that, that build great sprinters on and whatever stroke it takes. So it's like, you have to swim the proper stroke at the proper race tempos and get very good at that. You have to do, and then you have to seek uh, ways to even get faster through your power and speed programming. Uh, and then of course, recover, make sure that their eye, their eyes are lit up when they come to practice. And, uh, and if they're not, if they're not where they need to be emotionally, then just, just let them have an easy day and come back the next day and give it a go again. So, so, you know, athletes need recovery, uh, breaststroke, my, my, uh, probably tips on that would be, uh, have two drills, two or three drills that your go-to drills. Breaststroke is for sure going to, going to blow up. So you have to get the timing back together. You have to connect the kick into the extension. You have to value the line. And, and all those things can be done with, with a couple of drills that you might have as your primary drills. And uh, so I'd say that's, that's probably, you know, the biggest thing with breaststroke is to make sure the technical swimming for the event is ideal. And I know like for, for the, the, the Cal, Cal team this year, I was really happy when, when Reese Whitley didn't have to do the 200 medley relay because a 200 medley relay for 200 breaststroker to do a 50 full speed messes you up. Like you should not spend time trying to perfect your 50 if the 200 is your best event and your and your uh, you know and your and your style of swimming is is uh, such that you're uh, 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 you have to you know use a lot of distance for stroke. If you try to do a 50, it's just going to mess up your technique. Yeah. Now I couldn't agree more with that. And uh, I mean. Rega, the second year that I coached her, um, and as you say, when, when things start to blow up, and if you're a 200 breaststroker, the, the worst thing you could do is swim in a 50, and it takes me yeah, off. Yeah, I agree. You know, um, Mike Barrowman, he'd go out almost as fast as, as he could swim 100. So yeah, I, I think he stopped even swimming the 100. Uh, he did, yeah. Yeah. And he's in the 400 IM and the 200 breasts. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, breaststroke's been the most interesting stroke to me because of that. Like, you it, it, you know, those like Kitajima that can do both events really well, uh, you know, amazing. You know, but but even, even in NCAAs, you don't see very many people swimming the 50 on the relay, the 100 and the 200 at the top, top level. You have to sort of pick your pick your uh, events and, and uh, you know, of course – Adam Petey's taking this that stroke this stroke to a whole nother level. Yeah. Uh, so good on him, and uh, and and so it's been fun watching the variety. Like I was watching at the Tier Pro Series last weekend in in uh, San Antonio. I was watching Lily King swim against uh, the Texas girl that's from Germany. I can't remember her name, Annette or something. But two completely different stroke techniques, but both going 105 mid, mm. and one is going a really long distance for stroke. And, and, uh, Lily's, you know, doing her, you know, a little more aggressive stroke where she's really pulling up in here and really getting a lot of, you know, hip drive forward as she's coming through here. Yeah. Whereas, uh, the, 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 uh, German girls land into her line a lot better, more like, more like Renka, yeah. you know, so, 
it's a it's it's a beautiful stroke. That's why it's my favorite stroke to coach. I think it's probably yours too because yeah. there's it's it's fun to try to figure out how to make that thing work. Yeah, and I think on the breaststroke topic, uh, I said it was, and I, I mean, I was a breaststroker, but when I first started coaching it, I was like, oh god, you know, this is frustrating. <laughs> and and the longer I've coached, the more I've enjoyed it for those challenges um, that you mentioned. Um, yeah, exactly. Just thinking back uh, about relays and stuff, and it made me remember um, with uh, Rio, um, you know, with the four by medley, and the girls uh, ended up winning bronze in that um, that event. But we spent a fair bit of time in managing that team and talking about psychologically and understanding everybody in that team and what it meant for them to get the best out of themselves in that relay uh, situation. And you had a Janetta Otteson who was great, a great relay swimmer, you put her anywhere, would lift for the team and really liked the rah-rah-ness and the build-up. But Rega um, was the complete opposite. We had to yeah. keep calm because for her to swim her fastest, she had to be long and she couldn't dive in and be short. Right. So everybody on the team had to realise the mental state was different to get the best out of them. You know, and we didn't have another, per, you know, we didn't have anyone else to, we had four people, that was it. So yeah. but very, very true, you know, um, about um, the, the tempo of, of 50, 100, 200. And, yeah, I mean, you, you, can, you can, you know, you're not going to make a race the first 25 of 100, but you can break a race. Yes. So you, and you've got to swim that first 25 of 100, especially on the relay, that's some really well. And that, that relay actually gets, you know, we're really using that as one of the examples for, you know, I'm the technical advisor for the nation of Israel. You know, we have a goal one day of earning a medal in a relay and maybe a medal individually as well. And uh, that relay to this day is one of our you know examples of what is possible. And uh, that was a beautiful, that was a beautiful relay. Congratulations on that. That was a, that was a quite an accomplishment for, for Denmark. And I hope you got the proper appreciation for that. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and it, it just goes to show, um, you know, what's great about uh, swimming, uh, you don't always have to win to win, you know? Yeah. Um, yep. So, you know. Well, I, I, honestly, let me, let me comment on that since we're on a podcast. Um, I, I, that, so that you, you, let's go back all the way to the question you asked me earlier about the U.S. and what makes them so competitive. So in a, in a, in a, in a, in a sort of a classic American mentality and a collegiate American mentality, that wouldn't fly. Like, Winning is a big deal. Like first place is way different than second and third, way different. Yeah. And I think internationally, I think that is, is uh, not necessarily the case with different cultures and different, uh, you know, the, the groups. I, I feel like Australia is also a winning, like they, they winning is a big deal in Australia. I would say there are some countries in Europe that that's not necessarily the biggest driver. And, and I don't think it's, I'm not the passing judgment. I'm just saying, if we're going to evaluate what causes people to dig in and win and do the extra stuff in training or in a race, uh, I do think uh, if your ambition is winning, then you have to practice winning. You have to have the mentality of winning. Uh, otherwise, you may be second or third. And, and uh, not that second or third is a bad thing again, but I think that's something that 
that is is worth sort of evaluating and, and considering when when we're uh, setting up our programs and when you have a talented kid coming through. Uh, you know, I, I like it when we have 10-year-olds coming through programs. Uh, if I just talked to one of my assistant coaches and worked with a little kid's group and he said, yeah, I just had a race the whole time. Just race, race, race. 10 years old, just race. You know, you can learn technique at 11, 12, 13, but you can, you know, don't drive racing out of the spirit of a young kid. Yeah. And I think that's something that coaches that are watching this podcast can, can take from this. It's not always, you know, you and I are like technical people. We, we love technical swimming, beautiful technical swimming. That's, you know, you and I are thinkers, you know, in the same way. But the reality is you also have to realize that sometimes ugly swimming can win. And sometimes it's just turnover and toughness and grit. And, uh, and that, that may be what uh, makes the difference. Yeah, no, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, you've got to, I mean, and uh, yeah, this is certainly something I've got better at as I've coached longer. Um, you, you have to understand the X factor in people. And yeah. sometimes you can be too technical and coach that X factor out of someone if you're not careful. Absolutely. Um, Gennady Turetsky with Alex Popov, and he had another freestyler, um, Pop, what was his? He was completely, he was 100 freestyler. Is it Popchenko? Can't quite remember. I remember him. I remember him. I don't know his name. He was like a two-beater. He was an ugly freestyler. He was the complete opposite to Alex and had the same coach, you know, yet Gennady didn't try to make him into a beautiful freestyler, you know, so... um, and I've certainly got better at that as I've got older, um, working with what you've got and stuff. Well, don't don't do two beat hundred free sellers though. That that's that's gonna normally not work. By the way, <laughs> go ahead go ahead and do a six beat kick. <laughs> do you remember Anders Holmers from Sweden? I do, I do. Oh, yeah, how about how that? He swam so fast it was incredible. Yeah, I mean, he was yeah. quick from the hundred through to the four. I yeah, mean, like three forty six. He looked like he was wrestling a crocodile. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, better, back better back to that winning yeah. mentality that is so important. And again, um, you know, it's a you know, when you coach outside of your own country, you learn so much not only about the, the country that you, you're coaching in, but also where you've come from and the things that you just take for granted. Like, um, but that winning culture that uh, an aspiration that we had in a, and have in Australia. Well, yeah, I just thought, oh, well, that's just what you do. And then you, you, you rock up to a place and it's not that at all. Yeah. Uh, and, and so um, and what, I'd ta- what I used to take for granted, like um, Australia is very good at travelling, uh, very good at organising and understands the distance of travel and what you need to do. And then you, you get to a nation that doesn't need to worry about time and travel and they don't even give it a second thought, and you, and that whole management side of it, and they don't think it influences, you know. Whereas, so yeah, so I remember um, saying to someone when I first came back, if you asked, if you had have asked me before I went to um, uh, Denmark, what what are the three things that Australia does really well? I'd have to stop and really give it some thought. Once I went to Denmark after about two months. I could have yep. named it like that. <laughs> what what are they? Name them. 
Well, management was the first thing that came to mind. You know, what time, uh, yeah, how many days before the meet do we arrive in Europe? Uh, how we get there travel-wise, when we land. Um, like I remember um, the first, for those world champs in 2013, they asked me when did I want to get to Barcelona and I, I didn't want, I wanted, I gave them the date, but I said I want to land in the middle of the day. I don't want to land at peak hour. So the flights come back to us and they're peak hour landings. Yeah. Of course, they were cheaper. Yeah. And I went, no, no. And we only had a team of four swimmers. <laughs> so <laughs> I said to the guy, but, I said. But they were fast, so you could you could call it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, they wanted us um, there. So, so what did it mean to land at peak hour in the morning in Barcelona? It was only a one-and-a-half-hour flight. Um but it meant we had to be at the airport at 4 a.m. in the morning because it was an yeah. international flight, which meant that the swimmers were having to get up at 3 to get to the airport by 4. You, you can see how yeah. it just... Yeah. So, yeah. so you know, um, the, the management was just thinking about dollars, but I was I had my Australian hat on because of where I'd come from, you know. Anyway, we, we landed where I wanted to land in the end, but... Uh, okay, what's number two? What's number two? Australia. Um, uh, number two would be that um, the coaches. and Yeah, the, absolutely. Yeah. The, yeah. Your history of coaches is an all-star list. I mean, you're, yeah. the history, my gosh, goes back... Forbes Carlisle, before that even, but you you just have such a Phil Sweetenham who's taught the world how to coach. Yeah. You know, you just it's 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 very impressive your coaches. Yeah, when you um like you know when I was younger, I, and I, and I'm I know my history in swimming uh, on the deck and in the water, but I probably didn't. I still didn't uh, recognize at the time how lucky I was to be. Uh, traveling with coaches 10 to 10 to 15 years older than me. Yeah. Uh, in some cases, 20 years older than me. And just to be around that knowledge and you're just absorbing it. Yeah. And you're not even aware, you know. And I, I think that's a real strength. And when you look at, um, you know, when we break that down into states, when New South Wales was the absolute number one state, which was in, you know, the 60s and the 70s, um, that's when its coaches were the best in, in the country as well. Yeah. Don Talbot, yeah. Forbes Carlisle and, and, and yeah. many others. And then Queensland has had that, you know, when Queensland has had that success, it, it had the, the largest number of good coaches on deck as, as well, you know, so. Yeah, but, but I think now, like a guy like you, here you are, going back and starting a club again. How, how, I mean, how fortunate are those kids that's on your club? I was talking to Ian Pope not long ago and he's starting the sort of similar thing where he's really running a club again now at a, you know, at a base level. Yeah. I mean, if I'm in Melbourne, if I'm in Canberra, I'm like running to your clubs, you know, it's like, you kidding me? What an opportunity, like quit, 
quit those footy things and that uh, rugby thing and get in the swimming pool <laughs> and get with these coaches. You got some amazing opportunities in Australia right now to 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 be a part of something amazing. Yeah. Now, look, there's there's quite a few uh, people in that sort of scenario, um, and you need the hierarchy. It just needs to embrace that, and um, uh, and then that's that's where I think history uh, is so valuable. Um, we were talking about it um, earlier before with uh, Robbie and I. And that, that I suppose, I, I think the US does that better than Australia, though. You know, I think, and it's probably a cultural thing, you know, like you embrace your, um, as a culture, the, the, the people who do well. Australia, uh, the UK is similar, so we probably get it a bit from them. We, we, we got that tall poppy syndrome. <laughs> you kind of eat each other, eat each other up. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I'll tell you this, though. Walking on the deck is pretty funny. Walking on the deck, I had one of my former coaches sitting in the bleachers, and he said, says, he says, David, I was sort of just observing you at the NCAA deck because yeah, I've been on the deck and you no, know, since 2007 on a NCAA deck. And so I walk on the deck with Dave Durden and I'm walking around. And he says, there were, you know, coaches. It's so interesting how, you know, probably 80% of the coaches were completely excited to see you there. They're so happy to have you on the deck again. Officials are happy to have you on the deck again. Said so the man, there was 15 to 20 percent of coaches that were like shooting bullets through you. They were like they were staring at you. They were so pissed that you were back <laughs> in college coaching. And so, so yes, yeah, it's, it's not it's not 100 percent in the U.S. Promise, I okay. promise. But but you know that's also you know that competitive nature is part of what makes you good. You know, and and yeah. I do think you guys have that in Australia. We I certainly sense that. I sense that in Australia that uh, that. You guys want to win. You want to. You want to dominate. You want to win relays. You you want to put together things that uh, is the best in the world, and that makes us all better. That that uh, that, that, that all boats rise when we push each other like this. And I think we'll keep breaking records uh, as long as we have this kind of kind of rivalry and competition. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, I was talking to Robbie about uh, Stefan Widmar and myself. We had that rivalry. Um, amongst ourselves up in Queensland. And uh, as much as I, I didn't want to admit it at the time, but I look back and I go, yeah, we were both better for it. So, Yeah, for sure. I think, I think we, iron sharpens iron, as the Bible says, right? So it's yeah. like, uh, you know, it's, it, it really is. It's all about uh, us helping each other be better globally. And, and that's what's a great thing about these podcasts and getting to share knowledge and share experiences is that uh, we could, you know, this is now recorded, you know, I don't know how, how, maybe not all time, but for a long time. And the people want to hear more stuff. I mean, just like, you know, I had listened to, you know, Steve Tiggs, you know, podcast right before I came on with you because I wanted to hear what he had to say because um, I respect the job he's doing and, and uh, uh, some of the amazing work he's done with this, not just, not just with Duncan, but with his whole program and, and really his leadership on, I watched him be a great leader during ISL as well. And uh, it's a lot of fun to watch that uh, that development of a young coach like that. Yeah, what's with, what's happening with ISL? Dave? Is it going to continue? Or yeah, I, I just got an email today uh, from Ben Allen. He's the communications guy now, and, uh, and, and from what I know, Constantine absolutely plans on bringing it back. I mean, obviously, with Ukraine, everybody understands that with all the crap going on in Ukraine, that that uh, that it's a fair pause for. 
you know, a, a, a billionaire from Ukraine, right? He can't get his money out. So he doesn't want to offer a league where he can't pay the athletes. Yeah. And so, so he's, he's hitting pause on it this year, but the plans moving forward. I mean, there's, there's uh there's, there's new developments and conversations going on that I know of it will, it will happen again for a lot of us. It's probably a little bit welcome to take a deep breath and have a little time to, to breathe. Uh, you know, I know I wasn't quite ready in the summer to get going. I, I was hoping we would focus on the fall, but uh, as it turns out now, we'll have, we'll have time in the fall to, uh, to, to sort of you know, go through a sort of a tr- more of a traditional fall with the World Cups and, and other events and then be able to shift into hopefully ISL mode by next next year. Yeah. All right. That sounds good. good. Shannon, I, I hope you don't mind. If I, I, I want to jump, jump in. in. I've got a couple of questions, David. I, I don't want to miss my opportunities because I, yeah, yeah. I, I know how, uh, you know, Shannon. I used to think it was Shannon and I we could talk forever, <laughs> but I've realized it's just Shannon and anybody. Yeah, Shannon. <laughs> it's just Shannon. He's the common denominator with long conversations. <laughs> Mate, I, I just wanted to ask, obviously, you know, you've coached over 50 Olympians uh, during your Hall of Fame career, more than 19 countries, obviously, with, you know, the college systems and stuff like that. And you even mentioned earlier with the NCAAs just being on deck with all the chaos going on. A question for just selfishly for me at the moment is around emotional control as a coach, um, trying to, you know, know when to, you know, just ride the wave. And, um, you know, for all of us, we're all still learning. I was telling Shannon just before we started, actually, that I thought I was doing a good job of it. And then I had a junior swimmer win gold in the weekend and 100 breaststroke at state. And all of a sudden, it was like I'd had three three coffees. You know, I was bouncing around. And I didn't expect that. I didn't want that sort of reaction from myself. It was nice. But, you know, so sort of catching myself for you as, as a coach and obviously with all the experience you, you've been through, how do you go around sort of, managing and balancing your emotional control through the week? Well, it's, it's a great question because we're the coaches. So we need to become the coach, the athlete needs. So there, there actually are athletes that need to see you co- as a young coach being thrilled that they are performing after training. Great. You know, and you are probably more celebrating more because this athlete, I'm sure did a great job of preparation. You know, if they had just got lucky and hit it and they're so super talented, you probably could have controlled yourself. One cup of coffee, not three. <laughs> so so I, th- I think that's one of the things that we need to understand as coaches. Our job is to be the coach that the athletes need or the team needs at the time. So I think that's a, that's a thought process. At the same time, uh, it's important that athletes also understand that we love the sport, that we have joy in this process. And they need to see us be expressive about that. Now, now, I think there's times in how you express to where you want to uh, sort of pro, pro, uh, progressively offer that out, not, not give everything at every single swim. But honestly, I'd rather, I'd rather fault on the, on the side of enthusiasm than fault on the side of sto- you know, just being a, a stoic uh, coach that uh, show me how much you can do for me. Uh, that's old school. And that's mm-hmm. not that's not what. Uh, the, the current you know, young people need. They need to feel that you care. And uh, the more they feel you care, the more they'll pay attention. The more they pay attention, the better they're going to get. So I think that's, uh, that's probably my answer to that. Yeah, nice. My, my, my next question, again, with all the experience uh, that you've had and, and obviously the, the tremendous heights that you've been to as a coach, what continues to drive you? It's it's something that interests me. Obviously, you know, I do off the block swing podcast. And I talk to yep. many different coaches and athletes at the top of their game, you know, the people that are just gold medal at the Olympics. 
um, and we've talked about on this podcast, you know, um, slaying your dragon and, and for some people, you know, once they get to the top, Ash Barty, the, the Australian tennis player, just recently retired. Um, yeah, for yourself, though, yeah. you're still in the sport. You're still contributing. You're still working. You said even before you, you enjoy mentoring and working with them. You know, what continues to drive you within the sport? Obviously, there's a love of it. You wouldn't still be in here if you didn't yeah. love the sport. But what's driving you to, to stay in the sport and continue to, to learn? Well, I think what drives me is that I know what uh, swimming can do for people, the change you can make in people, the growth it can cause in people. And when I, and when I sort of uh, experience our sport in total, that's really what it comes down to, a changed life, not necessarily an improved swimmer, but usually that means they did improve. And I think because of the nature of our sport where there's a lot of delayed gratification, where there's a situation where it's, it's, a, it's a community that helps cause success. It's never going to happen just with one individual athlete. It's always a community. And the fact that at the end of the day, we're taking a non-normal situation. I mean, God didn't make us to, to, to swim in the water. He made us to walk on land and run away from you know, dinosaurs. You know, so so <laughs> I, I, I know when you lay in the water and you try to become a swimmer, you are non-natural. And I always tell people, look, I coach Brian Lochte, you know, one of the most you know, athletic or, or aquatic uh, athletes in the world. And, you know, I can swim out to La Jolla Shores tomorrow and I can find the local Nemo with one broken fin and he can swim way faster than Ryan Lochte could ever swim. So <laughs> we are not efficient in the water. So we, no, I don't care what we do. We are not efficient. We aren't very fast. So we have a lot more room to improve in our sport than in land-based sports. I think we have only begun to touch what potential there is in improvement in our sport as we learn how to become more aquatic, we learn how to move through the water, not only with you know power, but also with uh, buoyancy and with uh, acceleration and with all the dynamics that comes into you know uh, being effective in the water. Mate, my next question was sort of a combined one. I know Shannon wanted to ask this as well, so I'll, I'll get to this, Shannon. Then, if you've got any more questions, Shannon, feel free to jump back in and take back over. But you know, swimmers, the best swimmers that you've seen, maybe not so much you've coached. I'll take that out of it because sometimes you know people don't like hearing you know their yeah. name not be mentioned. But you know, for you, are, are there swimmers through your career that you've witnessed in the pool? Um, obviously, there's the obvious ones, but are, are there ones that would be less obvious that you've admired from afar? Uh, I love watching excellent swimmers just move through the water. And before I was ever a coach, I was a teammate for a short time, actually with the coach, Don Talbot was our coach in Nashville Aquatic Club. Oh. But I got the chance to swim with uh, Tracy Calkins. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you have her now as your, uh, uh, I believe, your president of your board or yeah. ch chair of your board now for, for Australian swimming. She, she she literally printed my mind on four strokes. I mean, she was a national champion in the U.S. in all four strokes in the 500 freestyle. I mean, the, the, the woman could do anything as an athlete, but she did it with such striking beauty in her style that to this day, I'm still sort of printed with that. You know, then you go to the other side of that and you take a stroke like breaststroke, which Shannon and I love, and you look at a guy like Petey who's swimming at a tempo that we never imagined you could do for a hundred breaststroke the whole way, because how could you get in such good condition where you could swim a hundred breaststroke at that tempo? Like it's just not even possible, but he's doing it. And he's even talking about going to next level and, and, and accomplishing something a whole nother level. Uh, I'm printed by uh, Ian Thorpe, 
and Peter van den Hogenbaum competing against each other, you know, and, and, and those, those epic 200 freestyle races they did. Watching the underwater footage of, uh, of, of Ian and that giant high catch, you know, he and Grant Hackett had this huge catch in the water that said, I didn't even know that was possible to do that. I never thought about that big catch until I saw these videos. Uh, and so I think those are probably my, uh, some, some that jump right to, to the forefront in my mind. Yeah, no, I mean, everything that you just mentioned there are standouts, aren't they? Yeah, and as you say, printed. Uh, I never yeah. got to see uh, Tracy swim other than the LA Olympics when she won. You know, I was a 12-year-old kid watching that. Um, and uh, But from memory, she was, like, ranked in the top 10 in, in all four strokes. Oh, yeah. All at the same time, plus the four. Easily. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Yeah, easily. No, she was she was amazing, and uh, and she was just this little you know thin little girl that uh, said thank you after every race. It was very unassuming. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah, no, excellent. Um, yeah, it's all, it's always good to uh, it's a good question to end a uh, a podcast on, and um, we've had some good ones. Stephen T mentioned Mary T. Uh, ah, Mary T. Yeah, my, I, I was in Brown Deer, Wisconsin, when she set yeah. her world records. It, you know, it was my last swim meet. I was there for my last swim meet. And she, and she, I, you know, we didn't know what that was when she went 205 because she was wearing like a, you know, regular suit with straps on and I mean, there's no high tech anything uh, and barely wearing a cap, I think, you know, and then 57, 900 fly and, and not that night, that not that great a pool. Yeah. And uh, it was like, what is this? And then honestly, what was more impressive with her is four years later after college in a completely different body, she went 206 with yeah. Scott Miller as her coach. And, uh, and it was after being at Berkeley for a while. And it was, uh, it, you know, but it was like, what is this? And she was, she was a phenom before her time. Uh, but you know, Susie O'Neill was, took her spot and was, you know, amazing for a long period of time as well. Yeah. No, no, very much so. Well, thanks Dave. Thanks for your time. Uh, we could go on, but, uh, I think, um, may, might save that for another time. Uh, my pleasure. It's great, great seeing you, and and I uh, can't wait to get over to Australia again. You guys, you guys, your doors are open now, aren't they? I hope. Yes. It's, it's okay, nice. so we can come back. <laughs> Man, you guys locked down hard over there. <laughs> you can come fun. back to Australia, maybe not Perth, Dave. I don't know. I don't know what Western Australia is like. Old mate over there is a bit right? stringent with his borders, but no, definitely here. Yes. I gotta admit, Cottesloe is maybe my favorite city in Australia. So you know, I, I, if I get back to Australia, I want to go to Perth. So, and I, and I understand Zoe Baker's over there now, and Ben yeah. Higson's over there. So I, I expect uh, swimming in in that part of the country to pick up here. Yeah, well, they've always had good athletes, WA. Um, so uh, that competitiveness that we talked about, um, those two guys, uh, coaches going in there, can only be good things for WA swimming. Should be very nice, yeah. yeah. All right, well, great David, seeing you guys, yeah. Yeah, and thank you very much for joining us this week. And hopefully we always say this podcast is really just professional development for anyone who wants to to pick up and, and press, uh, you know, 
play and and listen and um you know shannon and i are always um blown away by actually who listens to the podcast and you saying that you you know you are listening to it it goes to show that it doesn't matter at what level you're coaching there's always stuff to to pick up and listen so mate always. thank you very much for joining us today okay. thanks to all the listeners for joining us for another week we've promised david marsh we got david marsh even though shannon kept saying don't say it anymore stop saying it we got there so thank you very much david thank you to the listeners and shannon thank you as well yeah, thanks, my, guys. My pleasure, guys. All right, we'll see you, you on the pool the deck. team at Pro Swim Workouts have been supporters of the podcast from day one and continue to support the show and the coaching community more broadly with their platform, proswimworkouts.com. Head over to the website right now and become a member to receive all the exclusive content, whether it's programming, in and out of the water, thought-provoking articles, or even just sharing of ideas. It is a one-stop shop. And for all those just looking to browse, head over to proswimworkouts.com to find free workouts, podcast tips, jobs available, and so much more. So what are you waiting for? I'll say it one more time. Head over to proswimworkouts.com right now and let Nico know that Off The Block sent you.